0: Go ahead and get started then. Oh, bang. All right, so thing due today would be the solar observations. Um, all I need is a copy of your data sheet, so if you have it with you, just let me know after class. I can just take a picture of it. I worked that for another class. That worked just fine. If not, if you don't have it with you, email it to me. The only thing is, make sure if you have the copy, picture your name's on the top of it. Because otherwise, I'll take pictures of a bunch of them, and I won't know whose was who. So make sure your name is on the top of it. I can just do that right after lecture, um, before you take off. It'll take a couple seconds just to take some pictures of those. So that saves you the hassle of having to email it to me. But if you don't have it with you, take a picture of it and email it to me, and I'll get your credit for that. And then we have next time exam three, uh, covering chapters 17 through 22, and that will be same style and structure as the last exams, you do have the key points that I gave you that you can use, any other notes you want to write on them. I can't attach any other sheets, but that is a good thing to have uh, looked at there. And the review quizzes are due, if you're going to do those, are due right before the exam by 8.30 that morning as well. And then looking a little further ahead, Article Review 3 next week. That's the last of them. If you did the first two, happy with your grades, don't even bother. If you didn't do one of the two, definitely do that because that will drop drop a zero on it. So make sure you're doing that if you have not done the other two or if you didn't do well on one of them and want to try to improve your grade. But, so make sure that's done. That's due uh, Monday of next week. And then homework four, which I have for you, is due on the 20th. And at this point, we are looking... Exam four will probably be Thanksgiving week but I'm gonna juggle it around from what I normally do. I've been giving exams on Wednesdays with lab. That week, because I know some people do travel for Thanksgiving, I'm gonna swap the two days. Monday is going to be exam and lab. Wednesday will be just a lecture day. So I mean, you're gonna miss something if you're not here, but you're not going to miss an exam or a lab. So I'll probably do it that way uh, just to make it a little bit easier, but we won't, probably won't be through the material quick enough to do it any earlier. Than that so i 'm looking at the homework due on the 20th of November the week before uh, week before that and then I put a couple of notes up there just a reminder about the observing time for solar observations made well technically starting yesterday but uh, from this point forward anything else you make we set the clocks back that doesn't affect what 's happening in the That doesn't change the time when things are happening in the sky. It changes our time here on Earth. It doesn't really change anything that's going on. So the sun is still getting to its highest point at the same time. We set the clocks back an hour. We've got to set the observing time back an hour. So you now want to observe closer to 1215 for the rest of the semester. So any of the others. And then we will be going over the solar project a little more detail a little later this month. And then just a reminder for the final exam, they have posted the schedule and I just wanted to put that up there. Our final exam is scheduled for Wednesday, the 11th of December for at 8.30. Essentially the regular class time, you get a few extra minutes on it, um, on that. So you have that for, for that, it'll be right here. So, and I'll give you a little more detail about that as, it, as we get a little closer. All right, questions. All right, well, let's clear that, maybe, there we go. Take a look at our picture for today, which is the Lagoon Nebula. So this is an example of a star-forming region, so something we've just talked about. Can I get that a little bit bigger? There we go. Something we've just been talking about, I mean, we're getting to the end of life of stars, this is back to the beginning, but this is one of those star-forming regions. This picture is a little bit different than some of the others in terms of the coloring. It looks very blue. Uh, this is a, a, but a false color image. It's taken in the light of three different elements. So it looks at the light of hydrogen, which normally is very red, but is probably color-coded to a different <laughs> color here. And it also usually looks at oxygen and sulfur. So it looks at the emission of those three elements and uses that to trace it. It gives us a very focused image because you're only looking at three specific wavelengths just where those elements are. So it gets a little more focused than what we call a broadband image that looks at all of the light across the spectrum. So you're essentially using three filters, but really, really narrow. They only look at that one specific wavelength. So they look at that red wavelength of hydrogen and they look at certain wavelengths of sulfur and oxygen as well uh, to help get a very focused image there. Uh, then, what we see again are some stars. you can start to see a little bit of the stars few stars that are forming within there, and the stars are what shape the whole nebula if it wasn 't for the bright stars that formed, it would be invisible it 's their ultraviolet radiation that illuminates everything that we see there, and they also shape the image their stellar winds will also uh, affect this and clear out the ne- eventually clear out the nebula, but all the little Shapes and patterns that we see within it are really a part caused by those those stars that are forming. It's also about five thousand light years away, so that's what it looked like in three thousand BC. What does it look like now? You got to wait till seven thousand, the year seven thousand or so, to be able to find out. So, has it changed drastically? Probably not. For t- star formation timescales, you're talking 100,000 years. So 5,000 years is a relatively small fraction of it. doesn't mean there couldn't have been a supernova that occurred there you know, several thousand years ago, and we're still waiting for that light to slowly get here. So it could have happened. Even something as powerful as a supernova that we looked at last time can't break the laws of physics, can't travel faster than light, so the light from it would still be getting here. Uh would still be traveling here until it's crossed those immense distances. All right, questions? That will be the last one for the photos for the exam, for this one, and then I'll go on starting with Wednesdays, we'll pick up for the uh, last exam. All right, well, we have, we we're doing chap- we have chapter 23 and 24 to finish, which should be pretty good for today. And we had started on this, I had talked a little bit about supernovae, and that's kind of where I finished up. And what I wanted to concentrate on today is what's left behind afterwards. So we do see some things like this, a supernova will leave a remnant of material, it's an exploded star. A lot of that material got pushed out into space. So this is an example of the Crab Nebula. This is the remnant of the supernova that was seen in 1054. So, this is how far it's expanded outward in about 1,000 years. So, all of these filaments and tendrils that we see are all material that was once part of this star. Question, I'm sorry, yeah. So, 1054, that's actually when the light from this explosion yes. actually made it to Earth, which would probably mean that explosion happened thousands of years, probably thousands of years before that, depending on how okay. far away it was. So it didn't happen, and we observed no, that's it. That's when we observed it, yes. It's one of those things with, you know, like when we look at the sun, yep, that's what the sun looked like eight and a half minutes ago. Yeah, so we had, like you were saying last right. week, we're looking for one. One could have already happened. We're oh, yeah, there's pl- I'm sure there's some in our galaxy that have happened, and we're just, just waiting. We're waiting for the light to get here. Okay. Yeah, because that takes the time for it to be able to do that. So the outer layers get expanded out. And if you remember there was that implosion on the iron core that gets compacted down. Depending on the mass it can leave you one of two things. Last time we talked about most stars will leave you a white dwarf, a white dwarf behind. This is too much mass for a white dwarf. It can either be a neutron star. That's when you compress all of the electrons into the atoms. Electrons combine with protons. Charges get canceled out so they become neutral and they're a neutron. You essentially make a big, giant ball of neutrons, something that is the mass of a star, but is the size of a city. Might be, you know, eight, 10 miles across. So you've compressed that down and that's how much, that's how much empty space there is within an atom. So you take all the space between the atoms and you crush the sun down to the size of the earth. You get rid of the space within the atoms, you crush that earth now down to the size of a city. You can't do anything more than that. If you go beyond that, then that's when we get to things like a black hole that we'll be looking at a little bit later. You actually crush it almost out of existence except for a few things left behind. Uh, But what we can see here actually marked with the little box there is the central portion. And that would be where there is a neutron star in this. Now you can't really see it here. We'll talk a little bit more about those later. They're really kind of hard to detect because they're tiny. And how do you detect something that is only a few miles across that's that far away? We can detect them around small moons orbiting planets, but something like this, there are some ways that we can detect them. And we've known about them now for a little over 50 years. And in fact, Jocelyn Bell here is the one who actually found these uh, when she was studying radio emissions. And this is an example of what was seen was extremely regular pulses. In fact, don't usually give that many decimal points in science, but 1.33728 seconds. It was that accurate that you could measure it. It was that precise that these weren't just, oh, this one was 1.2 seconds, this one was 1.3. This was exact. So it's more accurate than any clock we had at the time. So how can you get get something like this? Well, one of the things that was thought, you know, is actually, you know, Kind of whimsically named LGM one, little green men. I mean, certainly, we can send. We could send an artificial signal with that kind of accuracy. So, was this a signal from something out, some, from some civilization out in space? Because most objects, how do you chain? How do you get a period of that small? Something like the sun. Our sun rotates every month, once a month. So you could get variations on the time frame of a month for it. It's a certain if it's if it was pulsing, you might get time frames on the fract on a, you know on a, on a little bit smaller scale. But for something to move that fast, to spin that fast, you know, what can spin and give you a sing, give you a signal if it's a natural object with a period of about 1.3 seconds. The sun couldn't spin that fast. If you tried to spin the sun once every 1.3 seconds, it would rip itself apart. Try to spin the Earth every 1.3 seconds, it would tear itself apart. I mean, the centrifugal forces would just fling material out. Try to spin a white dwarf star, very compact, it wouldn't be able to do that. The only thing that could do this would be a neutron star. So no ordinary star would be possibly able to spin as fast as as this could. So the LGM designation was a little more whimsical, but it is something, you know, this is the kind of thing, if you could detect something this regular and not be able to tie it in with some other object, you know, that might be a sign of, you know, a civilization out there. So, as I said, no no ordinary star could spin this fast. And then we found it wasn't just one object. You know, one could be some peculiar strange thing. When you start to find the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth of these, something else is going on. And that one was actually a relatively slow one. The pulsar at the center of the Crab Nebula is spinning 30 times a second. 30 times every single second, so 1/30th of a second to spin once. I mean that's just, you know, incredibly fast. That's getting and there are some that are actually even faster than this. But that's an extremely thing that this is the kind of thing that could hold up you know what has enough structure to it that it can hold up to spinning that fast without ripping itself apart and the only thing that we can come up with would be the neutron star spinning that fast and that is you know example It's the compact core left over after a supernova so the star exploded it compressed that whole core something about twice the mass of the sun, roughly. About two solar masses worth of material compressed down into the center and spinning faster and faster. And remember, how, why does it spin so fast? Well, as things compress down, it's conservation of angular momentum. Ice skater spinning, put your arms out, you spin slowly, bring them in, you start spinning a lot faster. So here you're taking material from Earth-sized Right as it was collapsing through that range down to a city size. You're taking a lot of material and compressing it down to a very, very small size. So it spins very fast. And in fact, we can find some that can spin you know, 50, 60, 100 times a second. So there are more that spin. You know, Crab Nebula isn't even the fastest one. But it's relatively fast because it's young. It's only 1,000 years old, for at least for, from the light we see on, of it. It only occurred 1,000 years ago. So it's still at a relatively high rate. They would, like anything else, frictional forces between material gases around it would slow it down over time. So the pulsar that's spinning 30 times a second now would slowly change over thousands and thousands of years. Now how this works, you know, how we see these, uh, first of all, we can't just, just because something's spinning fast, that, how do we see it? Well, it actually has to beam out material. So not only does the spin get enhanced when it collapses, but so does the magnetic field. You take the magnetic field that was really big and spread out and you compress it down, those magnetic field lines get all concentrated together and it gets a really intense magnetic field. So these are the little magnetic field lines looping around. And just like on the sun, we had particles that would follow along those. Well, you have particles traveling along these ones here. Those are very intense. It's a lot to try to escape this. Particles can't go through the magnetic field lines, but they can travel along around them, along them. And these ones that are heading out will then collect particles. So particles will actually beam off of the pulsar. So you'll get a jet of material this way and a jet of material that way. As the pulsar spins, if that beam comes across Earth, bleep, we get a beep of light from it, beep of energy. That's the pulse. Then it spins around, it goes around the other direction, comes back, spins at Earth again. We get another pulse. And that's what Jocelyn Bell saw. She was seeing those pulses about every 1.3 seconds. And that was the beam of this radiation pointing towards the Earth. That means, depending on how it spins, you know, if one is spinning around and it never points to the Earth, We'd never see it as a pulsar. It would still be there. It's only the ones that are lined up so that that beam comes towards the Earth. So it's a coincidence that the crab pulsar happens to point at the Earth. That happened a thousand years ago. It's just as likely that it could never point towards the Earth and we would never be able to see it. So it's only if everything is lined up. So we look at it as a lighthouse. That lighthouse beam comes out right at you, it's incredibly blindingly bright. If it's up higher, if it's down lower, you're not in the right position, you're not going to see it. You're gonna see something, but you're not gonna see anything near. You're not gonna get that intense pulse from these particles. And it comes down to what we call the lighthouse model, based on a lighthouse, in that the magnetic field has intensified, the the particles will move along the magnetic field lines, And when that beam, if that beam happens to pass the earth, then we'll be able to see it. If it doesn't, the neutron star is still there, but we can't detect it. So how can we test this? So how can we test, is this this the right thing? Well, what is the evidence of them? The masses are right. We, we know there's a range of masses for neutron stars, just like there is for white dwarfs. A white dwarf can be as most 1.4 times the mass of the sun. The range for neutron stars and pulsars, we can pick out what they'd be. We can calculate like we do for white dwarfs. We can calculate what the mass range is for neutron stars. They fit. So that's a good piece of energy, uh, piece of evidence. The pulsar beams will energize the nebula, cause it to glow. That is where some of the energy is coming from. And just like you have to conserve energy, where is the energy coming from? Well, that, the neutron star is slowing down gradually over time. So what was 30 pulses per second will eventually become 29, 28, 27, not over the next years, but over thousands and thousands of years, it is gradually slowing down. Well, that slowing down loses a little bit of energy, that energy goes into the material that's been expelled out, so the energy that is then exciting the nebula around it. So why that is glowing, a lot of that energy in the Crab Nebula would be from the pulsar at the center. And we can actually calculate. We can calculate making, those pulses are so accurate that you can measure the rate at which it's slowing down. Even if it's only losing you know, a millisecond at a time or a microsecond at a time, or a nanosecond at a time. I mean, measuring, measuring that accurately, you can figure out, okay, if it loses so much speed, that's how much energy it's lost. And we can, we can also match that to the energy of the nebula, how much energy is being emitted from the nebula. The two match. The amount of energy it's losing matches the amount of energy being, the, en- of, the energy being lost by the pulsar is what is being given to the nebula and then being given off. So energy is conserved. So that's a good sign that our theory about it is correct, that pulsars really are rapidly spinning neutron stars because we're able to explain the observations that we see. The amount of energy being produced all ties in with it. The masses are correct. So it's a way to be able to kind of test that model. Now, pulsars uh, live depends on the exact situation, but they can live up to about 10 million years. The neutron star lives forever. The neutron star is there. So it's not the neutron star, it's the pulsar is the neutron star that is spinning that we can see as pulses. That's about how long it would take it to slow down to the point where we're no longer gonna be able to detect the pulses. So, you know, going to take a second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, And as it goes down, the amount of energy being released decreases. So eventually it gets to the point where the pulses are so spread out and so weak that you can't detect them anymore. When we look at them, we can also see the pulses at different wavelengths. They were detected with radio waves. So that's how we first detect them. That's how Jocelyn Bell detected them. She was looking at radio observations. However, you can look at the crab pulsar, it actually pulses in video, video in, in video in visible light. So if you take if you take pictures of it, you can take it's on, it's there. Take a picture a fraction of a second later, it's gone. It's still there, but it's not giving off any light. So we see it when it pulses. We don't see it when it's not pulsing. So when that beam comes die, there's the big bright light. We see the pulsar. Fraction of a second later, guess what? It's gone. We don't see it. Take a picture when it comes back. So taking those pictures, you can see it in visible light. Some really strong young pulsars, you can see in X-rays or gamma rays. So the amount of energy depends on the, how fast it's spinning and how young it is. So those very young pulsars, like the Crab Nebula, are giving off wavelengths all across the spectrum. When you get to older pulsars, they're not. Old pulsars are not doing that. They're giving off just radio waves. Lowest energy, easiest to be giving off. Neutron stars themselves are almost impossible to detect. They're really, they can be hundreds of thousands of degrees, but they're tiny, incredibly tiny. I mean, white dwarfs are hard enough to find. Neutron stars are even harder. So if the pulses are not pointing towards the Earth, doesn't mean a neutron star isn't there at this supernova remnant. It simply means the pulses aren't pointing towards us. Or there may be other ones that simply are spinning too slow to any, lo- to any longer produce strong pulses. So we're not able to detect those. We have detected, at least in one case back in 1992, a lone neutron star. Maybe it's a pulsar, maybe not. It's not a pulsar to us because we're not seeing the beams. So it doesn't pulse from our location. Temperature is about, about half a million Kelvin, and this is one that Hubble was able to detect and determine the properties of. It's about 400 light years away, and it's down to about 14 kilometers, which would be about eight miles in size, about eight miles across. So they're tiny. So the fact that we can detect some is great, but there's no way, I mean, we're, we're struggling to detect ones that are several hundred light years away. There's, a, there's probably a lot more of them out there. And you'd have to know right where to look. They're really faint. Just because I'm, show, I'm showing you an image of it here, that's not the brightest object around. There's lots of other far brighter objects. This would have been an extremely faint object. But these are one of the things that can be left over after the, after the supernova explosion. So, let me finish up the first section here. Neutron stars, they were actually predicted earlier, but they weren't actually discovered until the 1960s. That's the way we discovered them, was as pulsars. They gave us something to detect them. They beamed this radiation at us that allowed us to be able to detect them. The Lighthouse model will explain that, explains why we see neutron stars as pulsars, and it also explains why we don't see every neutron star. Why don't we see a pulsar at the center of every remnant of a supernova? Well, if we see the remnant, the pulsar should probably still be there, pulsing. If we see the remnant, it's relatively young. It takes that, that remnant will disperse out into space over less than 10 million years. But the reason is, sometimes those beams just happen to pass, you know, n- never point towards us. They go around and around in a circle but they never point towards us. They slowly lose energy and eventually die out as a pulsar. Neutron star remains, the neutron star will still be there. So if you could come back in 10 million years, look at the Crab Nebula, the material would have dispersed out, but sitting there will still be a neutron star, won't be pulsing anymore. Pulses will have gotten too long, too stretched out, energy would be too low that it's not giving off any more energy, but it will still be there. I mean, there's nothing that's going to destroy that neutron star. All righty, questions? All right. The well, last thing I want to look at here is what happens when these are in a binary system. As I said, that, that neutron star is just going to sit there. Nothing else is going to happen to it. Our sun's going to turn into a white dwarf. It's just going to sit there. Nothing will happen to it. It'll sit there for trillions of years, if the, depending on how, the un, how long the universe lasts. It'll sit there. However, I was looking at individual stars. Some interesting things do happen if they are in a binary system. So if they're in two stars close together, we can get some things like novae, supernovae, another type of supernova. Remember I told you last time there were two types. We talked about type 2, which was a star exploding. And we can also get x-ray bursts and gamma-ray bursts. So these all involve the compact stars we've been looking at. Neutron stars are white dwarfs, but if they're in a binary system instead, then some interesting things can happen. The sun is a white dwarf, will sit there for a trillion years, just cooling off. A neutron star in a binary, I'm sorry, a white dwarf in a binary system might, might explode. There are some cases where that can happen in some of the supernovae that we've been able to detect. But what I want to start off with is let's look at something a little bit calmer, is we want to look at the Novi first. So Novi is just referring to a new star that appeared in the sky. So people would look out. All of a sudden, a star appeared where something didn't. It hadn't been before. Not necessarily incredibly bright, but a reasonably bright star, depending on exactly how far away it is. What happens if you have a white dwarf in a binary is that you can have the white dwarf star there, When the second star evolves, remember how big it gets? It's small, it's far away, nothing's gonna happen. But when it becomes a red giant or a red supergiant, it may become close enough that its outer layers are pulled onto the white dwarf. So matter will actually transfer. So you're pulling a lobe of material here and it will slowly spiral in and build up on the surface of the white dwarf. That gives energy, that heats up that (laughs) hydrogen gas. What's the outer star layer of the star made up? It's all hydrogen. If you heat up that hydrogen enough, you slowly build up, it's gonna take years, you build up some hydrogen there, add more hydrogen on it, heat it up, heat it up. That's a really hot object as it is. High gravity, and as you're pulling the material in, if you get it hot enough, you can actually have nuclear reactions start. If you get enough, dense enough layer of hydrogen on the surface of that white dwarf, up to a high enough temperature, all of a sudden nuclear fusion begins not in the center of the star, but on the layers, on the outer layers, and then that'll burst out. So you get a big big burst of brightness because all of a sudden you've got hydrogen fusion, while that's giving off all sorts of energy, and that will throw off those outer layers out into space and nuclear reactions are out. So the star will become hundreds, thousands of times brighter. That's not incredibly bright, but that's a good, good amount of brightness instantaneously that will happen. A hundred times brighter or a thousand times brighter can take a star that was below the edge of visibility and make it a decently bright star. It can take a star that was, say, eighth magnitude, a hundred times would bring you up to third magnitude, which is a reasonably bright star in the sky. And you certainly one that people would have noticed thousands of years ago. It's like, wait, this star was not here in this constellation yesterday. So it's a very sudden change and that was why they got their name as a nova as a new star now we didn't know what was happening with them now we have a better understanding of that the interesting thing about novae is that they can happen over and over again because once that explodes gives off that light guess what this star is still here it can still start transferring material again so a nova can actually occur multiple times it doesn't damage the white dwarf star it's a little explosion on its surface, a little nuclear explosion on its surface. It doesn't care. That is denser than anything we know about. You know, a nuclear warhead going off on it wouldn't budget. So it just blows up, gives off all this brightness, and then the, it starts again. It builds up enough material. So maybe fifty or hundred years later, a star that went nova will go nova again. They're not going to be completely regular. We can't say that this one is going to nova every fifty-three years. Because the transfer isn't uniform, sometimes you get more, sometimes you get less. If you get the material on it faster, maybe it'll occur a little quicker. If it takes slower transfer, it take, may take a little bit longer. So it's not a perfect that I could say, but you can say, oh, you know, in a few decades, this one will likely become a nova again. And that can happen multiple times as long as the star is here to transfer. Now, eventually, this star goes through its life, it becomes a white dwarf too, and you're done. You just got two white dwarf stars orbiting each other. So this is a relatively mild one because the star is there and it can do it again. It only gets, you know, a hundred or a thousand times brighter. The big one that can happen is the exa- is when it becomes a supernova. Now, we talked about a supernova at the end of a star's life. built up iron in its core and imploded and gave us something like the Crab Nebula. You can also get a supernova from a white dwarf. It's the same thing as a nova. At start you have material being transferred what happens here is what happens if you transfer too much material to it so our sun will become a white dwarf that might be you know half three quarters of a solar mass maybe most of its material it's never going to get close to that 1.4 solar mass limit what if you had a, so one that was at 1.38 it's stable It's going to be a white dwarf. It's under the limit. It's just fine. But what if you transfer those two one hundredths of a solar mass to it and you push it over the limit? You're putting that one straw that breaks the camel's back. You're doing that one too many. Guess what? You put that one last atom on it will push it over that limit and it will collapse. So the star can no longer support itself. It can only hold, you know, the camel can only hold so many straws. One too many? Camel collapses. Too much here, one here. The star will actually collapse. So this is kind of going through. The star became a white dwarf. This is just showing the evolutionary sequence. This one is still main sequence. It transfers material. And if this then pushes over that limit, all of a sudden you get carbon fusion occurring. The white dwarf is made up of carbon. Once you get it hot enough, you start collapsing it down. Well, guess what? Now it's pushed it over the limit. It was massive enough that it can start that fusion. But it doesn't start just in the center. It starts throughout the whole star. It essentially detonates the star, and that entire star explodes. Nothing is left behind. So a type II supernova leaves behind a neutron star or a black hole. A Type 1 supernova leaves nothing behind—a re- nice remnant—but there's nothing at the center. You're never going to find a pulsar there, because that entire star just detonated and exploded itself outward. So essentially, it's a carbon—it's called a carbon detonation supernova. Sometimes called a white dwarf supernova. It's just all of a sudden, you know, the whole thing is a gigantic—you know—hate to even compare it to a nuclear warhead because it's—you know—a nuclear warhead is not even a matchlight compared to it. That's how much energy is being released in these kind of things. So all of a sudden, and it just tears the star apart. These are actually really important supernovae that we'll look at later on. The nice thing about these is you know, a regular supernova, the type two, the star might've been 50 times the mass of the sun or 60 or 80, they're all different. Every single one of these is exactly the same. It's a star that exploded that was 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Means it's a uniform process and we can use that eventually to track distances because we can see them over vast distances. We can use them as a distance measurement. We can use them to figure out how far away distant galaxies are based on this. So we'll come back to that, but it's going to give you a little bit of a uh, preview of what we'll be looking at later on there. So just to summarize, I kind of gave you the two types of supernovae. I've talked about them on and off here, but I wanted to just differentiate between the two. That type 2 supernova is a massive star at the end of its life. will leave a neutron star or a black hole behind. It will leave something behind when it collapses, whatever that core was compressed to. And that just depends on the mass. The more mass of the star, the more likely it is to leave a black hole. The less mass of the star, the more likely to be a neutron star. The other thing is that it shows, when we look at a Type two, when we look at the spectrum of it, we see hydrogen lines. Remember, this was a massive star. It had a big, giant envelope of hydrogen around it. So when it explodes, we see lots of evidence of hydrogen. A white dwarf star, a white dwarf supernova, does not show hydrogen lines. Yes, it had a little bit of hydrogen that was transferring to it, but relative to the total mass, it's very small. So this will expand, this will not see strong hydrogen. So that's one way astronomers can differentiate because if you just see the supernova, you see the star get really bright, there's nothing else here to be able to tell you which kind it is without taking a spectrum. And these are the ones that are key. These are kind of a standard candle or a standard bulb that we use to compare distant galaxies because every one is the same. Every one was a 1.4 solar mass white dwarf star that exploded. So it doesn't, shouldn't matter whether it occurs in our galaxy or it's two million light years away or two billion light years away. It should be, ex- should be the same. Same star explodes. Should be the same, should get to the same brightness. Which, guess what, means if we know how bright it got and we see how bright it appears from Earth, we can then use that as a d- distance indicator. So that's one of the big things with these that we're going to want to come back to when we start looking at Galaxies. Because if you remember our distance ladder, you know, our distance ladder barely got us out to the nearest galaxies. A few nearby galaxies with like the Cepheid variables that can be seen tens of millions of light years away. Now that gets our galaxies in our local, little local neighborhood. But we've got to go hundreds of millions and billions and 10 billion light years away. Can't begin to see those stars. But supernovae don't just become, you know, a few times brighter to hundred or a thousand, they can become millions, billions of times brighter. So they can, you can actually see them outshining an entire galaxy of stars. That's how much energy is being produced there. So again, we'll come back to those later on and look at those as a key distance indicator in determining how far away galaxies are. Now, that was if you had a white dwarf. What happens if you have a neutron star? The process can be exactly the same. You had a neutron star here. The star was far enough away and stable enough that a supernova explosion you know, didn't, didn't damage it significantly, probably did some damage, but not just significantly. And when it expands and goes through its life, it can actually transfer material into the neutron star. So material, it's exactly the same process as a nova. Except that instead of a white dwarf star, with its relatively small gravity by comparison, you have a neutron star. Larger mass and compressed into a smaller volume. So as you build it up there, you get much higher temperatures. And when things start to ignite on that case, you don't get just bursts of visible light, but bursts of X-rays. So we do see X-ray bursts, which are probably something very similar to a ANOVA, except they're occurring on a neutron star instead of on a white dwarf star. We've detected a number of these now, so it's not just one or two of them again. It's when we start detecting you know, hundreds and thousands of them, we start to be able to get some kind of idea of a model as to how these might work. So this one, again, the process is exactly the same as ANOVA. Big star there. Little compact object, transfer material to it, build up on its surface, get a high enough temperature, and ignite it. And that gives off all the energy. At the lower energy of a white dwarf, lesser energy. Lesser visible light. At a higher energy of a neutron star, we actually get uh, intense uh, amount of energy. And that will give us off x-rays. Depending on what's happening, this is one way we can get some super-fast rotating uh, neutron stars. We get some pulsars that are millisecond, so talking thousandths of a second, so that's even worse than 30 times a second. If you're spinning you know, a couple hundred times a second, that would be what we call a millisecond pulsar. Well, there are ways to actually spin them up. If the star is spinning in one direction and you push material in it, you know, each little bit of material hitting it gives it a little bit of a push and you give it a little push going in the right direction, you can speed it, you can constantly speed it up. Just like pushing a child on a swing, right? If you give it a push at the right time, they go faster and faster and faster. Well, eventually you can speed this neutron star up to the limit, you know, eventually. Yeah, you spin anything too fast, even a neutron star, it would rip itself apart. But these can get up to their limit as to how fast we believe they can actually spin. So that's one way to be able to kind of to speed them up so some of these really, really fast pulsars that we see did not form naturally but actually formed through uh, companion transfer from material. All right. The other thing I wanted to look at here were the gamma ray bursts. These were actually detected back in the 1960s by the military. Did the military detect astronomical things. Well, bursts of gamma rays would also come from a nuclear warhead going off. So, so, Back in the 60s, lots of nuclear testing was going on, not underground, but up above ground. So, be looking for, you know, violations of test ban treaties. You're not supposed to be doing that, so they we're looking for those. So actually, first detected by military satellites, and looking for gamma rays here on Earth, but now we've detected thousands of these. Uh, we've been able to do some. This is actually one of the gamma ray bursts that was detected by Hubble, Um, and then trying to look for that region in this distant galaxy where it occurred. So, it's hard with gamma rays to be able to pinpoint the location. If you remember, we talked about resolution of telescopes. Optical telescopes had some, especially if you get above the atmosphere, ignore atmospheric effects, but the shorter the wavelength, the better the resolution, up to a point. So, Red, red wavelengths, really bad resolution. When you got off to the infrared and the radio, it was really bad. But as you got to shorter wavelengths, it got better and better. However, the problem is when you get to too high of an energy, like gamma rays, you can't focus them. How do you focus a gamma ray or an X-ray? Right? If I shoot a bunch of X-rays at a mirror, they don't bounce off like visible light or infrared or ultraviolet would. They either stick in it or go right through it. They're, penet- they're very much more penetrating. Um, so gamma-ray telescopes can detect a general area in the sky, but we can't focus the object the way we focus it with any other type of radiation. X-rays, there are some ways to focus, barely. If you kind of skim it off the mirror, instead of hitting the mirror straight on, you kind of skip it off there. Kind of like how you can toss a flat rock on a pond and it skips off even though it shouldn't. Well, it should, should just go right in. It's a lot denser, but because you hit it that way, it can skim off. Well, you can do that with x-rays, but that doesn't even work with gamma rays. So it's really difficult to pinpoint the location, but some cases where we've been able to actually find you know, what was the optical region, where was it coming from, there's been a few cases of that. And most of these are billions of light years away. So you to imagine to see something billions of light years away, how much energy it has to be putting out. This is one object, this isn't a whole galaxy with you know, hundreds of billions of objects that we can see their combined light. This is one object that has been then able to see uh, giving off that light that is billions of light years away. Now there are two types of these that we see. We see long duration and short duration bursts. The cutoff is two seconds. A long duration burst means it lasts more than two seconds, a short duration burst, less than two seconds. These are kind of related to a supernova that if the star lost its hydrogen, those outer layers were expelled out before the supernova exploded, they got far enough away that you can get a burst of gamma rays from that supernova explosion, that's that explosion. So you've lost those outer layers, they've been expelled out earlier through whatever instabilities, and the star then explodes. It's still going through that process. If it still gets to iron, it doesn't care whether it had hydrogen wrapped around it or not. Once that core gets to iron, it explodes. So that energy can be beamed out, kind of like the pulsar in a way, as the star collapses, giving us a burst of gamma rays. So that's one version, the, some somewhat more interesting one maybe, are the short duration bursts, which one of the thoughts now is that they are caused when two neutron stars collide together. Why would two neutron stars collide? Well, they could have been in a binary system in the first point. Could have had two stars that went supernova in the same system, each becoming becoming a neutron star, and if they were close enough as they lose energy, they'll slowly, over millions of years, spiral closer and closer together. Right? They're traveling through the nebula that was left behind. A little bit of frictional drag brings their orbits down closer and closer. Eventually, they will combine, forming a black hole. A black hole we can't find out anything about, as we'll learn about in a little bit. But as these two collide together, we can get that massive burst of gamma rays when this, when this occurs. So it could give us a massive burst of gamma rays when these two neutron stars combine. And that would be just, you know... That would be the ones that are really short. That's the ones that are less than two seconds. And we see something. We actually are starting to see some signs of these in gravitational waves. And I'm going to talk about gravitational waves in the next chapter in a little bit. But gravitational waves occur anytime anything with mass moves. So if I move here, I'm giving off gravitational waves. And guess what? My mass is so low, you can't detect them. You can't begin to detect them. However, very massive objects spinning really fast can give off now, as of a few years ago, detectable gravitational waves. And that's one of the ways we've been able to detect these and we can then detect the gravitational waves that come from them and model backwards and say, okay, here's the gravitational waves we saw, what does this mean the objects must have been like? So we can kind of work backwards. And we'll look at that in a little bit, in a little bit here. So, finishing up this chapter, Again, the compact stars, when they're in a binary system, we start to see interesting things. When they're all by themselves, eventually they kind of just calm down and just either sit there as a white dwarf or a neutron star. By after 10 million years, get 10 million years is a very short time, astronomically speaking. So once we have 10 million years worth, then it's just a neutron star sitting there. The interesting things that we get are when we have a binary system, we can get the novae or the supernovae that are very important. And a neutron stars can possibly give us x-rays or gamma ray bursts. All right, question. Otherwise, we will look at chapter 24. And we get to start off with gravity, general relativity. This is actually our explanation of gravity right now. Even though I taught you Newton's laws, Newton's laws of gravity are wrong. They work really well in every situation and any ordinary person would ever come up with. The only cases they don't really work are when there are really strong sources of gravity around. And there were some problems noted with this you know, a little over 100 years ago, that Mercury's orbit was wrong. We couldn't predict ner- Mercury's orbit properly using Newton's laws. Something was wrong with it, meaning either there was something wrong with our understanding of gravity or maybe there was another planet in there orbiting close to Mercury. That was one thing that was thought, but we would have detected that. Even looking at eclipses, we would have been able to see that. People looked for one. But Einstein then gave us general relativity in 1916 as a new way of understanding how gravity works. And it's, it's different than what Newton said. Newton said, if you remember way back, force is equal to g m1 m2 divided by r squared. It's a force between two objects. The earth pulls on the moon, the moon pulls on the earth. And that causes the force that causes an acceleration. It works, I can use this to calculate you know, when the next eclipse will be. I can use it to calculate where Mars will be 30 years from now. You know, I can use it to calculate just about anything in the solar system. We can use Newton's gravity and it works just fine. What it cannot uh, dis- explain is motion near strong sources of gravity. This is why Mercury was the problem. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun and it's motion wasn't explained right by Newton, because it was too close to the sun, and the deviation, the differences between general relativity and Newton's law of gravity were too large. The actual amount of the shift was minuscule. We're talking about tiny fractions of a full moon diameter over hundreds of years, but they were measurable. They were something that bothered people because they were measurable. It's not like, oh, it's within our measurement errors, then we're not going to worry about it. But it was beyond the measurement errors. It also cannot explain motions at high speed when you get near the speed of light. If I have time at the end, I may talk a little bit about special relativity. It's not really covered in the textbook. And what it describes instead, instead of a force, moon pulls on the earth, the earth pulls on the moon, that's not how it's described. It is a bending of space and time. So what Einstein says, instead of a force between two objects, the earth bends space and time around it, and then the moon moves as it should in that deformed space. So the earth deforms space around it, the moon moves in a path as close to a straight line as it can in this space that is no longer nice and flat. The stronger the source of gravity, the more deformed space gets. So, the Earth deforms space a little bit, the Moon deforms space even less, but the Sun deforms it more. A neutron star would deform it even more, and a black hole would be the ultimate deformation of space, almost get an infinite deformation. And the closer you get to any of these is when things become important. But when you're far away, it doesn't matter. I mean, yes, technically you need general relativity to calculate the Earth's orbit, around the sun, but it doesn't make any difference. Newton's laws work just fine when you're that far away from the sun. But for Mercury, you actually needed them. So what Einstein gave us was one of the things we call the equivalence principle. And what he gave as one of his postulates, and a postulate is something we take as as accepted, he said that in a sealed room, You cannot do an experiment to determine the difference between either of these things. So you can't tell the difference between an object that is weightless object out in space. So if you're in that sealed capsule, you can't tell if you're out in space and there's no gravity because you're out in the middle of nowhere or you're in free fall on the earth. They're exactly the same. There's no experiment that you can do. Now again, sealed capsule, you can't peek out the window and look. But if it's sealed, any experiment that you do is going to be exactly the same. The other one would be you have no way of telling if an object is being accelerated by a force. So again, you're in this closed capsule. There's no experiment that you can do to tell if you're being accelerated up or if you're standing in a gravitational field. So if we sealed this room off, right, block the windows, we can't see out, other than some logic that says we can't be in space, there's no experiment that I could do that says we're not on a spaceship that's being accelerated up at 9.8 meters per second every second. If I drop something and we're in a gravitational field, right, it falls down because gravity pulls it down. If I drop something in a spacecraft that's being accelerated, it also hits the floor, not because it fell, but because the floor came up and hit it. Any measurements that I do will be exactly the same. So no matter what I do with that, and as the people throw the ball back and forth, you'll hear they're in free fall. So they look to them like they're throwing the ball back and forth, but the actual path of the ball is a curved path. So to them, because they're both falling together, it just looks like they're tossing the ball back and forth until, you know, hopefully this is a bottomless pit because it wouldn't be pleasant when you got down to the bottom of it. But they could just toss the ball back and forth. They're going to fall at the same rate and they can toss it back and forth but the actual path of it is going to be a curved is going to be a curved path and the same kind of thing would happen with light rays this is one of the things that really became important for this is that since you can't tell the difference that means you're going to shine a light ray you know the light ray will eventually hit at some point further down light rays are bent by gravity too So gravity, that that doesn't work under Newton. Newton says it's a force between two objects with mass. Light has no mass, therefore it's not going to be bent. But under Einstein, if it's just deforming space and time, then the light rays get bent as well, which is another big difference between these two. So the experiment here, you know, does light travel in a straight line? Well, this is the example that I was starting to mention there. If you have a rocket sitting on the earth, Right? We'd say the light beam would travel straight across and hit the other side. Right, I mean, That makes sense. If I shine a light beam across here, it's going to go straight across and hit the wall, directly straight across. You have a laser beam going across. However, if you imagine the same rocket accelerating through space, in the time it takes the light to travel, the rocket moved up a little bit, so it's going to hit a little bit further down. But what Einstein says is you, there's no, this can't be right because there's no way to tell the difference between those two. The results, the scientific results have to be exactly the same. So if it hits further down here because the rocket accelerated up, then guess what? When I shine the laser over there, it's not straight across. It actually d- deflects a little tiny bit. Now, distance is so small, you're not going to be measurable. My little wobbling is my hand is going to be more than it. But it would be slightly, lo- slightly lower. So gravity can actually bend light and that's something that's going to be very important because we're going to use that as another way to be able to help a way to help us measure masses of objects when we can look at gravity and how much gravity how much things are bent it also means that you know strong gravitational sources like the Sun would be bent now this is one of the big things of Einstein's general relativity because this is a prediction he made with his general relativity in 1916. What it said, it says gravity will bend light. It had never been seen before. So we can go test it. Because when light passes near some source of strong gravity, yeah, moon's too small, gravity to really deflect anything, but the sun. Sun is a really strong source of gravity, the closest, biggest one we've got. So we can use the sun. Except the sun's so bright, if I look out there now, how do I see stars near it? Gotta wait for an eclipse, or travel to an eclipse. Take a picture of the stars around the sun during an eclipse, right? When the sun blocks out, when moon blocks out the sun, all those stars are visible. So you can take them even relatively close to the limb of the sun, and then wait a few months till that's visible at night, take the picture of that same part of the sky, and compare the two. And that was done in 1919, just a couple of years after this, and was really a great triumph for Einstein because he was found to be correct. So it was a way to test between these two. You know, Newton said it's going to do this, Einstein says it's going to do this. We found out that Einstein was correct. So that light does actually bend in a gravitational field. And that all comes back to the equivalence principle that just says when you're in that sealed capsule, there's no experiment that you can do that will tell the difference between. This being accelerated up, that's being accelerated. That's not sitting there in space weightless. If it's being, you have to have the engines constantly on and going, accelerating you. Then you cannot tell the difference between there and standing here on the ground. Anything I do, throw a ball, drop the ball, throw it up, it's going to do exactly the same thing, whether I'm in the rocket or whether I'm here on the surface of the Earth. Now, when we look at this, it's kind of what's happening. How can you bend a light? Well, it's the space and time that are deformed. And then light always wants to take the shortest path. Right? Shortest path in you know, a straight list between two objects is generally a straight line, at least in a flat space. So this causes light, because, but because space is bent, it, follows it causes it not to follow that straight line. And the amount of distortion depends on the mass of the object. So this is an example of what you call a space-time diagram. So, in other words, you've got to cut down the dimensions. You can't do one in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time because our minds can't wrap themselves around four dimensions. We can do three, right? You know, up and down and left and right and forward and back. We can get three, three, but if you try to add a fourth one, it gets hard. So here we're looking at just one direction. And what you have is, you know, somebody's trip starting at point zero at time zero, and then for their first hour, they were driving somewhere. 60 minutes, they traveled 150 kilometers or so. Then they must have taken a break for a little bit because time continued to go forward, but they didn't travel any further in space, and then they picked up again later on. Now you can do these with multiple dimensions as well, but they get a lot more complicated trying to uh, match them around. But essentially what what Einstein is saying is that when you get close to a strong source of gravity, all of this also gets deformed, that space and time can actually get mixed up and jumbled up if the gravity is strong enough. Earth isn't strong enough to do that. Sun isn't strong enough to do that. But some of these massive objects like black holes can. So what do we see when we look at this? Well, this would be an example. This is what the Earth does. This is now two-dimensional space and you know what does the earth do to this to two dimensionals you know we can't imagine three dimensions bending into a fourth dimension again our minds just don't we cannot get that concept of you know where is that fourth dimension it exists but it's not we're stuck in three dimensions we can't see it so we can cut the things down a dimension to try to get the analogy that here we have the earth is deforming this area around it and If something were trying to move, if it's far away from the Earth, it travels in a nice straight line. But if it comes close, it gets bent because it's following this curved path. And the Moon being within this would just follow a nice curved path around the Earth. So the orbit isn't caused by a force, it's caused by the way the Earth has distorted space and time around it. Now, if you put something like the Sun here, that deformation would get larger, this well would get deeper. If you put a black hole there, it would get even deeper. So it all depends on, again, the mass of the object. A small object, right? me, I deform space and time around me to a small amount. But a larger the object is, the more that's going to be able to be seen and able to be measured. So when we talk about this, we usually see it in terms of... Um, usually see it in terms of very large, uh, very massive objects. So neutron stars, yeah, white dwarfs, black holes, things that are very massive and very compact. So even though you might have a star, big star that's more massive than a neutron star, the neutron star is condensed down really small. So you've got that high density and the gravity is all compressed. So a neutron star can actually deform space around it a lot more than a star of higher mass because that's, star is spread out over a much larger area. Now, I mentioned these already, but I wanted to go back and just talk about the two tests of general relativity that I mentioned, well, a couple of them at least. One was the orbit of Mercury. So when, when we look at Mercury, if you remember what the term perihelion means, its closest approach to the sun, that position slowly changes. So... It was here, then it's there, then it's there, then it's there, then it's there. Slowly changes each year, and we can measure that amount. That was where where Newton was wrong. His measurements of how this should change were were off from what you should have gotten, from what we were actually seeing. The difference was tiny, 43 arc seconds per century. The moon is 1,800 arc seconds across. This is a tiny amount measured over a hundred years, not a per year, over a hundred years. So that's one example, but that was measurable even back in the early 1900s. We knew that there was something wrong with Mercury's orbit, which led a lot of people, a lot of astronomers to postulate that maybe there was another planet there that was causing deviations in it. Maybe another planet existed there to be able to try to explain why Mercury's orbit wasn't following Newton's laws. The other was the deflection of starlight. And that is when something comes, when light comes right by the sun, it would get bent. And of course, we're gonna look at it, we don't see that bending, we see it is now coming from this direction. So while the star was actually here, out there, it's gonna to appear to come from you know way back up there. It's actually a really small shift, but measurable. You could take images of the sun during an eclipse, you could take images of the sun several months later after, after the eclipse and compare the two, compare the positions of the stars. And were those close to the limb of the sun bent more? Again, it's only a fraction of an arc second. It's about two arc seconds there, but something that was definitely very measurable at the time. If you remember, we were already measuring parallaxes that were smaller than this, so we were able to measure smaller angles at that point. How about time? Well, gravity slows down time. So a clock on the ground runs slower than the clock on the second floor versus the third floor versus the top of a tall skyscraper versus the, an airplane versus a satellite. Further you get away from the source of gravity, the slower it is. Now, it's not, it's not really measurable. If you know, just go to the second floor, you're not going to change how you're You're not going to you know stay down on the ground floor you're going to age slower right because time is going slower won't make any difference even traveling up in a plane it's very it's minuscule you're talking about you know nanoseconds in terms of the difference but it is something measurable so and we can we have been able to measure this by actually putting high uh, atomic clocks up in orbit you can measure how they work compared to something here on the surface of the earth and they will slowly deviate because this one is further away from gravity, it runs faster than this one here on the ground. Again, it's not gonna change by seconds, but we're talking, you know, billionths of a second. Uh, we can still measure that that accurately. The other thing that we see with these kind of things is what we call a gravitational redshift. So the redshift that we mentioned, that I talked about, the Doppler effect was due to velocities. This is a different kind of a redshift due to the, uh, due to gravity. So, light, when something tries to escape from, from an object, it slows down, right? If we launch a rocket, it starts off at a certain speed, and as it gets further away, gravity pulls on it. It may not stop, but it's, it's always slowing down. If I throw an object up in the air, right, it goes up, it slows down, and eventually it stops, and then comes back down. Light can't do that, light can't slow down. Light always travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. So light escaping from a very intense gravitational field, it still has to lose energy just like anything else, but it can't slow down. It can't travel at 200,000 kilometers per second, which an object with mass, with mass would do. So what it does is it loses energy. It changes its wavelength. So something that's emitted at blue light from a very strong gravitational source could be shifted out to the red. Now, something like the sun would not change the colors. The amount of shift from the sun would be very minor. But when you're talking about things leaving from very close to a black hole, we would get some very large shift like this. And again, that's because the speed cannot matter. The speed cannot change. The speed is always going to be the same, and it doesn't matter whether it's blue light or red light, it still travels at the same speed but each photon of red light has a little bit of less energy. So you lose energy trying to escape from that gravitational field. So why does this matter? Why do we care about this? Well, we depend on it every day. GPS satellites, very dependent on this. If you don't take it into account, your GPS would never get you anyplace because relativity, both general and special, are very important. There's two things happening. They are traveling at very high speeds, which slows down clocks. I haven't talked about special relativity. I'll see if I get to that after. Um, so traveling at really high speeds, that's going to slow down the clock. But they're also high above the Earth where gravity is weaker, so the clocks speed up. Not by equal amounts. They don't completely balance. So if we don't take special relativity and general relativity into account, it can give us a whole difference of a whopping 38 microseconds per day. 38 millionths of a second. However, when you translate that onto Earth, when you're doing distances, that's about seven miles a day. So if you get your GPS calibrated one day, guess what? The next day it's going to be off by seven miles. So it would not get you anyplace. So GPS satellites have to do this, and you'll have to be able to take all those calculations into account to take relativity into account. So... While it generally only applies in extreme situations, it also applies, you know, with extreme accuracy. You wouldn't be able to pinpoint your location, you know, to within, what, feet or whatever it is now? But you can find out where you are or get your location traveling there. It is really important for that. And if you don't take that into account, I mean, 38 microseconds per day doesn't sound like much. But that can correspond to when you're doing distances seven miles worth on the Earth. Well, if you get within seven miles, astronomically speaking, you're in the right. You're close. But if you're actually trying to get someplace, being seven miles away isn't going to be a good thing. So you do need relativity, both general that I've talked about and special relativity, which special relativity has to do with high speeds, traveling at high speeds. So finishing up here, Einstein really gave us a new way of talking about gravity. It's a bending of space and time, not as a force between objects. I talked about some of the tests that have been done, and then I kind of gave the example, you know, GPS satellites. You know, that's, what you, that's what's used here. You use here when you're, trying to, when you're traveling, and you're using GPS in your phone or GPS system, something to be able to locate you. If you don't take those into account, it's not going to work. So even those small amounts are actually important. All righty, question Otherwise, let's take a look at some black holes here. These were actually, and we think of them as a more modern thing, but they were actually considered back in the 1700s. And the idea was, we knew about escape velocity, and the thought was, well, you know, you, you need to travel so fast to escape from the Earth. What if something was, you know, dense enough and massive enough that the escape velocity was greater than light? So, didn't know didn't know they actually did exist at that time. But you know, the concept was actually thought of there. That eventually, if you make, imagine making something smaller and smaller and smaller, eventually you get to the point where the escape velocity would be greater than 300,000 kilometers per second, and light would not be able to escape. And that's really what we mean by a black hole. It doesn't have anything to do with the mass or what it's made up of anything, or anything else. It's just an object with such a strong gravity that nothing can escape. Anything could be compressed into a black hole. Right? I think if you compress the sun, you've got to compress the sun down to something about a few centimeters in size. Something like that. You compress it small enough. Somehow, how you do that, I don't know, but if you can compress it small, it would become a black hole. If you can compress the earth down small enough, it would become a black hole. Compress a person down small, they'd become a black hole. But you've got to remember, you're crushing all of that space. You've got to have enough force to overcome all of those things. So there's not really a mass limit to a black hole. You can have black holes that are micro black holes that are tiny mass. You can also have very large, very large ones. So there are some other things that can occur there. But really thinking about this, as you compact something smaller and smaller, as it gets, you're not changing the mass, but the size is getting smaller. So it's getting denser, and the gravitational field is going to get larger on the surface. Right? We didn't change... Remember how the gravitational force works? Go back to Newton. It depends on the distance. So as you make this distance smaller, the gravitational force from the center to the surface is going to get less and less and less. And it's going to get harder and harder to escape from it because the gravitational force is going to be stronger. And eventually you'll get to that limit where it becomes 300,000 kilometers per second and you can no longer escape. So you can sometimes look at it this, like this diagram here from your text. If you're, a, if you're at a lower mass object, something like the Earth, you can shine a flashlight off in any direction, and it pretty much travels in a straight line. The deviation from the Earth would not be large enough that you'd be able to see it. If the gravity is strong enough, and space, now we go back to Einstein, space and time are deformed around it, Now these light rays have to travel in this really heavily deformed space. Maybe this one, we're not a black hole yet, this one can get away. If you travel straight up or very close to that, you can get away. But anything going off at an angle travels around and ends up coming back. So space is kind of folded in upon itself, and material going out, light going out this way, ends up coming back. Eventually you get to the point where even this one can't escape. You've reached the escape velocity of being the speed of light, then nothing gets away. That would be what we mean by a black hole. So if you get it, if you curve that space and time around it enough, so sun doesn't do this. Sun isn't even close. Lots of energy escapes from the sun off in any direction. A white dwarf star, energy gets away. Neutron star, energy gets away. But if you get, compress that neutron star a little bit more, eventually nothing can escape. So don't look at it as, again, we're trying to look at this as Einstein's way. It's not a force. It's not that the light rays are being pulled on by it. The light rays are just traveling around as best they can in this really heavily deformed space. Now, black holes themselves are actually relatively simple objects. There's not a lot to study about them. Oh, they're weird and all sorts of strange things go on with general relativity. But in terms of the parts of a black hole... It's a lot less than right, the parts of a star. We had all the different layers. You had the core and the radiative layers and the convective zone and all the different layers of the atmospheres. A black hole really has a couple different parts to it. It has an event horizon. We call that because that is the distance from the center where the escape velocity is greater than light. If you cross the event horizon, there's no going back. You cannot get back out. If you go inside there, now your escape velocity is greater than light. You cannot get out. You cannot send any signals out, nothing. So there's no way to get away from it at that point. So at that point, even light does not escape, which gives it its idea, a concept of a black hole. So we cannot know what goes on inside there, right? This was a really massive black hole with a gigantic event horizon. You know what, a supernova could go off right there. We wouldn't know it. No way for that light, that energy, nothing to get out. No light gets out, no energy gets out, no matter gets out, nothing. Uh, The Schwarzschild radius is actually just a calculation of that. So the Schwarzschild radius and the event horizon are really the same thing. I mean, the event horizon is kind of this imaginary surface. It's not an existing part of a black hole. It's conceptual. That's That's the point where you cannot get any information out of it. You're out here, you're fine, you can send a signal away, and if you can travel close to the speed of light, you can get away. If you're on the inside, you're out of luck. So the radius, uh, this just determines the radius of the event horizon. And it's given by a bunch of constants. 2, number 2. C, speed of light. G, gravitational constant. And the mass. So really the radius, the event, the radius of the event horizon depends on the mass. So a small black hole, really tiny event horizon. More massive black hole or supermassive black hole, things that are millions or billions of times the mass of our Sun, can have really large event horizons. And then there is the actual black hole itself, which honestly, we don't completely understand what happens down there. Our physics all breaks down. General relativity breaks down. It does not work on these kind of scales. So theoretically, as from what we say right now, it compresses down to what we call a singularity or a point. Take all the mass you've got, crush it down to one point. That's it. And by point, I mean you know, tipper than the, much smaller than the point of a pin, not the head of a pin, the point of the pin, much, much smaller than that. You're talking crushing the things down beyond atomic and subatomic sizes, but everything, all that matter there. Because as far as we know, right, white dwarf could be held up by the pressure of the electrons. Neutron star could be held up by the pressure of the neutrons. If you compress too much to that, there's nothing that we know of that could stop it from collapsing. It will collapse into a black hole. How the singularity works is a really good question. And of course, even if we wanted to travel to a black hole, we could go in there and find out, but we can't get out to tell anyone. Can't send a signal out to tell anyone. Here's how it actually works. It does stop collapsing. Something must stop it. Because if you get in there, once you're inside the event horizon and you can actually then see that, there's no way to get back out. So the singularity is kind of a theoretical point. It's not something we know whether that exists. There are some concepts as to whether it could be you know, a point or is it actually a ring of material. There are some other concepts there that, you know, depending on exactly what's going on with the black hole. How big is a black hole? Well, okay, I was a little off on those. Uh, the size depends on the mass. I was doing the earth when I mentioned the sun earlier. If you wanted to compress the earth, if you could take the earth and everything on it and somehow compress it down closer and closer together, when you got the entire earth and everything there down to about a centimeter, it would be a black hole. But you've got to compress that. That's how much, that's how much you know, space there is within everything that you could have to crush that much out to make the earth a black hole. The sun, I said several centimeters before. I apologize. That's actually about three kilometers. Still, so that's about two miles, less than two miles. Take the Earth, the sun, which is 101.4 million kilometers across, and you've got to compress it down to three. But it could be made into a black hole, if you had some way to do that. If you took the entire galaxy into a black hole, the event horizon would be about a tenth of a light year. So you could actually get, you know, if you can compress something, the mass of a galaxy, we'll see some of those when we talk about galaxies. There are black holes that large. The event horizon would be about a tenth of a, about a tenth of a light year. Light year was what ten trillion kilometers. You're talking about a trillion kilometers. That's you can be quite you can, you don't have to get really close to the black hole to have crossed the event horizon. There, obviously, with the sun, you do you kind of notice things if you got within three kilometers of it. But trillions of kilometers, you might not even notice the difference. Now, the other misconception that I like to do, sometimes we think of a black hole as like this big vacuum cleaner that sucks everything up. It really doesn't matter unless you are really close to the black hole. Only when you're close to the event horizon. So, is it a cosmic vacuum cleaner? No, we wouldn't notice it. We could take the sun right now, convert it to a black hole somehow. So one solar mass star it could make it a one solar mass black hole. Somehow compress it. If some aliens come through with some technology we can't imagine, compress the sun as it is to a black hole. Nothing happens to the Earth's orbit. We're going to still orbit around it once a year. Gravity is exactly the same. doesn't matter whether it's compressed to a point or whether it's in the shape of the sun. It still wouldn't be pleasant because it would get awful dark. It would get awful cold, you know, our Oceans would freeze and the atmosphere would freeze down, and we'd have, you know, so it wouldn't be pleasant in other ways. But in terms of the orbit of the planet, it wouldn't change one bit. In fact, we're orbiting, well, the Sun is orbiting around a black hole right now. The center of our galaxy is a black hole about four million times the mass of our Sun. We're orbiting around it right now, just like all the other stars in the galaxy. Doesn't make any difference. Unless you get really close to it, you've got to get into these kind of distances, or at least a few times those distances. So if the sun were compressed to a black hole, if you were 10 or 20 kilometers away, you might notice some differences. But when you're 150 million kilometers away, you're not going to notice anything about it. So the black hole is really not going to just sweep up everything unless there is material very close to it. As I said, black holes are really, you know, simple objects in many ways because they only have three properties that's it you can know three things about about a black hole and nothing else the biggest one we can know its mass it does have some sort of mass we can measure that through gravity so it has some amount of material it can have an electrical charge positive or negative so if you send a lot of protons into a black hole it becomes positively charged. If you send a lot of electrons in, it'll become negatively charged. That doesn't usually last very long because if you make it really positively charged or really negatively charged, it's then going to have a a force, an electromagnetic force that's going to pull in things of the opposite charge and tend to neutralize itself. So we're not going to find generally electrically charged black holes because the electromagnetic force is so much stronger than the gravitational force and it has an angular momentum or a spin. That's it. Everything else we talked about with stars, any other objects, there's no concept of them in a black hole. What is a black hole made up of? It doesn't matter. We don't know whether the black hole formed from hydrogen. Probably did since that's most of the material. Did it form from iron? Did it form from carbon? Can't tell. All of that information is crushed out of existence when when you create a black hole. So we have no idea what the composition was. We don't get any spectral lines from a black hole. We can't learn about it. We can't learn a composition, and there's no composition there to learn about. Now, theoretically, we say that it collapses down to a point or the singularity. This is where everything breaks down. So Einstein's theory of relativity, which is great. I always tell people, you know, wait 50 or 100 years, someone's gonna come up with something better. You know. Well, Einstein's is a great model and works, it doesn't work everywhere. It doesn't work when you get down to the subatomic sizes. So, so it's sometimes what they call quantum gravity. Einstein can't do it. I, quantum mechanics and general relativity work great. Quantum mechanics explains how atoms works beautifully. General relativity explains you know, the big scales, but they don't mesh together. The grand unified theory. String theory is one of the ones that people work on to try to be able to combine, to mesh the two together. And that might give us a better understanding. You know, does a singularity really exist? So yeah, I'll talk a little bit about those, I think, towards the end when we get to the, not here, but at like the end of the class, we talk a little more about some of the other models. But yeah, the whole idea is you know, that's what we want to do. with a grand unified theory is trying to say, okay, how can we combine general relativity, which works beautifully, and quantum mechanics, which work beautifully, but they don't mesh together at all. They, you, can't, you can't use gravity to explain how things work when you get down to the subatomic scales because gravity, general relativity, explains things on a macro general scale. Quantum mechanics is all probabilities, and they don't really match. Yeah? So right now, we think no matter how much mass is actually in the black hole, it's still a singularity. It's, it's still a singularity. From, from what we can know now, that is. And again, that may be... Who knows how that will change as we better understand things. But that is right now, you know, it, I'm going to say it is questionable as to whether that will, whether that really exists. I mean, protons, uh, neutrons are made up of quarks. Do, do the quarks eventually stop something? Is there some kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't, can't claim, you know, a big a big understanding of, you know, that, that level of subatomic physics at that kind of level, you know. But we said electrons eventually stopped it, the neutrons stopped it. Do the quark stop it eventually? Does something else stop? You know, is there something else that happens there that would keep it from becoming a singularity? It doesn't keep it from becoming a black hole. It's still a black hole because once the, all that means is the escape velocity is greater than light. So essentially, a neutron star is almost there. If you compress a neutron star a little bit more, it, becomes a, it would become a black hole. So it would still become a black hole, but what happens at the center of that black hole is what's really in question. Yeah? So in theory, if... <laughs> Yes. We would never die because time does not exist. we never age. In theory. In theory, actually in theory, some of the stuff I've read when you get in if you can get inside the event horizon, which is possible, not for, for really massive black holes, it's not unreasonable to think you could get into a black hole. Space and time get all twisted around and some of the thoughts I've heard is that, you know, we, we travel through space and time right now all the time. We can go all sorts of directions in space. And we can travel one direction and one speed in time. We travel forward at one second per second. Some of the thoughts I've heard is when you get inside the event horizon, things get all twisted around so that now you can only travel in one direction towards the singularity. But you could go back and forth in time. Like we travel through space. Now, whether that's real or not, it makes for great science fiction, but it also, how do you get out to tell anybody? So you can travel, you know... Travel forward, to travel forward, travel backward. You know, you could do that, but you can't travel out of the black hole. So you may be able to travel back to, you know, back a thousand years, but you can't get out of the black hole. You're still inside the black hole. So, but there are some interesting thoughts there that I've, you know, read about. Yeah? I think that does something, something like that, yeah. I mean, some of, the, and some of those they do. I mean, they go through a lot of work to get... Is that the one where they did? They had some physicists actually come. I think it was one of those. They had write up all the general yes. relativity equations, So they were actually correct. You know, not just random scribbles. Yeah. And there are some thoughts that maybe a black hole works like that, and there is a way to get through. There's there, there's something, but we just don't understand it enough to say. And you know, who's going to be the one to try it? Because as far as we know, once you go in, you're not coming out. So, good. All right, so now, tripping to a black hole is actually next. <laughs> <laughs> so what would happen? Well, it really depends on the mass of the black hole. So um, the clocks, you're getting closer to a strong gravity, clocks slow down. That's what general relativity does. So while the clocks here on Earth versus in orbit change microseconds, here you're actually going to get things that are going to run slower and slower. This is what we see. I've got to remember that it depends on who's looking. So us seeing the clocks run slower as the astronaut gets closer and closer, the gravitational redshift from their signals, and eventually the astronaut, to our appearance, would look like they stop. Time slows down, slows down, slows down. You get to the event horizon and things stop, from our point of view. The astronaut doesn't notice this, right? Because everything's slowing down for them. It might take them an infinite amount of time, but their time is slowing down, so to you... Even though time is running slower, you still plunge right into the black hole. So the astronaut, everything would seem perfectly normal. They would see, of course, clocks from us running a lot faster. So our clocks would be zipping ahead, but the astronaut wouldn't notice anything. The person traveling there isn't going to notice and start being in slow motion or anything. They're going to see everything perfectly normal because everything for them has slowed down. Um, So everything is going to appear perfectly normal to them. Now, this leads us, but what, what we're going to notice is that you're going to get this stretching. As you can see, the poor astronaut there is all stretched out. There are forces, there's a gravitational force pulling on the feet and a gravitational force pulling on the head. <coughs> Excuse me. If you get close enough to the black hole, this force gets a lot larger than this force. It's the same for the Earth. The Earth pulls on my feet stronger than it pulls on my head, but the force is minuscule, and the structural you know, composition, the molecules, they're stronger, overwhelm that, so I'm not being pulled further down. However, when you get to the black hole, this force becomes tremendously different, and actually it'll undergo what a process that is called spaghettification. Essentially, you're getting stretched out. So it's a tidal force between here, so you're just yeah, stretching out into a long, thin strand of spaghetti. So you would not be able to travel to a small black hole. Something stel- These are like stellar mass-sized black holes, the kind that form from the supernovae. We would not be able to see those kinds. So that would not happen. Actually, the person would be you know killed getting close to it, ignoring anything with other radiation that's coming from around it and other stuff. You know, that stretching would do that. However, a larger black hole, you wouldn't. If the black hole is large enough, the event horizon is far enough away that you could cross it without even knowing it. If you talk about this, something, the mass of the sun, where you're talking about being you know, a tenth of a light year away for masses like the galaxy, well, you could actually cross into the black hole, and this, the, gra- the, the forces would not, this would not be that different. You would not have a big difference between you because you're already such a far distance away. Well, the difference between your feet and your head when you're a tenth of a light year away is minuscule. When you're talking just kilometers away, it starts to be big, big forces. So it is something that would happen if you tried to travel into. You wouldn't want to travel into a small black hole. And this is stuff, this is stuff we do understand because this is what happens outside. It's inside is where things break down. So you could cross the event horizon of a supermassive black hole, things that are millions or billions of times the mass of the Sun without even knowing it. So cross it, it's too late because you're not getting back out. All right, so you could, and again, what would happen inside is, as we talked about, a little bit of an open question that we really don't understand. So then the last thing I wanted to look at here is really, do these exist? How can we detect something that you can't see? Right? You can make all these nice theories, but you have to have some way to be able to detect it. Well, there are a couple things that you can detect about a black hole. Remember, it has mass. Since it has mass, it has gravity, and we can detect that around orbits. So we can use things like, if we find something orbiting around nothing, or what appears to be nothing, we could then detect that, and we could actually use Kepler's law to determine the mass. An example of this is Cygnus X1, which I picture here. Cygnus X1 is a compact object pulling material from a bigger star. So, this is the star we see, and this is a strong X ray source as material spirals in towards that. But nothing's seen there. You can't see a white dwarf star, you can't see a neutron star, and the problem is that the companion. Based on Kepler's laws, calculating the masses, we can estimate the mass of the total system and we can know how massive this is because we know what type of star it is. This has to be about 15 times the mass of the sun. Well, 1.4 was the limit for a white dwarf. We don't know the limit for a neutron star precisely, but it's about two or three times the mass of the sun. 15 is way over the limit. Neutrons would not be able to hold it up. So just based on that, this is one of the first examples that we found of a black hole. And that's the only thing, as far as we know, it's the only thing it can possibly be. And it's pulling material in just like we did in the NOVA and the X-ray burster. It's doing the same thing, except you're not going to build up any material on the surface of the black hole because there is no surface on which to build. The other things that we can see are X-ray emission from this as material spirals in. So once you get to the event horizon, you can know nothing. However, this disk of material around it, remember how small that event horizon is, we're only talking a few kilometers. Outside of that, this material gets heated up to millions of degrees and gives off X-rays. So we do see those, the gravity accelerates them, friction as they collide together can heat them up to millions of degrees. So we can detect the X-ray emission, that's one way to infer the existence of black holes. And we'll come back to these later on, supermassive black holes that exist at the center of many galaxies. And again, we can see them, same thing, gravitational effects and X-ray emission. So let me finish up here. I'll save the last one for next week uh, after the exam, which is when I want to talk about gravitational waves. But again, just the definition, what is a black hole? All it means is an object whose escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. So even light cannot escape. They have very few properties. There's not a lot of detail about them. Mass uh, is a big one, but does not make it into a cosmic vacuum cleaner, even if it is a large mass. And we do have some evidence for stellar and supermassive black holes, and we'll come back to the supermassive black holes and talk about those next week when we start talking about galaxies. So I'll cover gravitational waves. This isn't part of your, remember your exam ends through chapter 22. So don't forget about that for next time. Um, Come on. No, I didn't want that one. I wanted that one. Hit the right button. There we go. So exam next time, so don't forget that. Make sure you've got your key points with you with any notes you want on those. And if you're doing the review quizzes, make sure you get those before you come to class on Wednesday. So otherwise, questions? If you do have your solar observations, I can take a picture of those real quick to save you submitting them.